Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Hey, welcome back. I'm so excited to be here for episode five. Thank you for joining us, listeners. Yeah, this is this is great. Kirsten, it's wonderful to see you. I, I feel the same way. It's always good to see your smiling face. Sorry you can't see us, listeners, as <laughs> this is an audio medium. <laughs> Just know that we look gorgeous. Totes. <laughs> I do actually get myself quasi-dolled up when we do this, even though I know that our Zoom recording is mostly for backup, but... I mean, yeah, I do my hair and I put on a little bit of makeup. I mean, I have a, a setup now between <laughs> my computer screens and my lamp. I don't have a ring light, but it's it's a pretty good lighting setup. <laughs> you know, just making that little bit of effort. You never know when we might need to steal a clip or do something with it. So it's kind of like not going out in holy underwear. And then I darken and fill in my eyebrows and beard with the Zoom video editing settings and everything's fine. Oh my gosh, we should tell people about that because we played with this the other day, but I don't know if everybody knows about it. I mean, I'm on Zoom all the time and I didn't know about it until you told me. Yeah, it's the Zoom facial... Ooh, like I've used them and now I'm like, what are they even called? (laughs) But it's like you go to your video filters... Oh, it's called Studio Effects. Yes. So then you can go in and uh, do, I mean, you can do some heavy touch-ups, but you could do some really light touch-ups. And as someone with um, very light-colored eyebrows, I do dye them, but, you know, I don't dye them all the time. It's like a (laughs) month in between, so they get lighter as the month goes. So it's like, I can just uh, darken them a little bit, and no one will ever know I'm using a filter. (laughs) It's amazing. I wish, you know, we could have filters just in life. I know that eventually they'll come up with some kind of, you wear a necklace and it throws up a force field around your face that makes you look like a big smudge or something. I don't know. (laughs) I think there's several end-of-the-world science fiction novels that touch on this uh, as being a really bad thing of people being addicted to filters. Oh, I thought you were going to say impersonating other people. Oh, no. I mean, it's true. Like, I'm going to tread carefully on this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) The people who face-tune their faces so much that they don't even have a nose anymore in Mm -hmm. the photo are convinced that that is them looking good. Mm, Yeah. And I'm like a very firm believer that there are almost no ugly people on the whole planet. Mm -hmm. Um, It's so much perception and self-confidence, but like I I feel so bad when I see pictures edited that heavily because it's like, it's got to do something to your brain. Like this is how I look good. And it's to achieve an inhuman standard but then you start to fall for it. Kind of like Kardashian effect a little bit. Like now yeah. they're turning into parodies of themselves. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that it is. I, I mean, there's body dysmorphia and I think it's got to be related to that. And it's an actual mental illness. So I, I don't think that we're saying anything really controversial to make the link that maybe these people are kind of suffering and that this isn't what we would call vanity or, you know, it's... It's actually a form of a disorder, I think, when it gets to that extreme. So I try really hard not to, unless it's a funny filter, I don't put filters on myself at all. Mm -hmm. Because, well, even at another job I worked at, as we would, like, Photoshop people for magazine covers or whatever. Yeah. The whole goal was that you look like you had a very good night's sleep, but that you are you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I will admit to having touched up a photo or two in my time, <laughs> but I try to do things that, like you say, you know, oh, I have I have a pimple, so I take out the pimple, or, oh, I had really dark circles under my eyes that day, so I take them out, and maybe I smudge a little crease here or there, but, you know, nothing, like, wild. Maybe, you know, take my teeth, like one or two levels wider than they actually are. But again, something that could be achieved with good dentistry and maybe I just haven't been to the dentist in a while. But yeah, I'm, I'm kind of the same. Like, just for my own sake, um, 
you know, I, I don't know. It's it's like a, a thing. And with two young daughters, I have to think about what will what message will they get if they see me making myself look other than I am? You know, that doesn't, I, I think, probably instill them with confidence that being yourself is okay. So there are definitely times where I take a picture or they take now pictures of me and I'm thinking in the back of my mind with kind of the way I was raised and socialized, like, oh my God, like whatever flaw I see in myself. And then I'm like, you know, to them, I'm just their mom. And like, I have to stand by it. It's what people see every day anyway. So it's not like I'm fooling anybody. (laughs) That's how I feel like with my dating apps and stuff. It's like, I am purposefully putting up pictures that I think are not the best, like the best because I cannot even imagine what it would feel like to show up for a first date and like see disappointment. Mm. So like in reality, I'm probably making myself look a little bit worse on dating apps <laughs> on so that I can like pleasantly surprise them. <laughs> and it's like, oh, well, if you swipe for me, then you're in for a treat. <laughs> <laughs> I like that strategy. It's like in episode one, you know, try to keep the bar low. And then people are always pleasantly surprised. And I mean, they're pictures of me and they're current pictures. But it's like, yeah, if if I have like, you know, you can sometimes take a really good photo. <laughs> and so I, I would hate to stack my photos like that because, yeah, I, it really is a fear, too, of like, oh, if if you feel like I'm not me in the photos and I presented the absolute, absolute best lighting, best version of me, it's like, well, I'd rather you see who I actually am. And then uh, we can go from there. I mean, the only exception, though, I feel like is if I die some gruesome death, either accidental, natural or otherwise, like I want my absolute best picture. So I'm going to for sure be that person who the picture is obviously like 25 years old. <laughs> <laughs> I've given instruction to all of my loved ones. Like this is the picture that needs to be used. Mine will just be a slightly blurry photo of Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? I think he could play you. We were talking about that before and I've decided that Although I said it obsessively in the episode, I've gone back and listened and I'm like, so Skarsgård, whatever your first name is, I forget. Um, I'm bad with names. Sorry. Like, I think you're an amazing actor and and you're not old. You're younger than me. But yeah, he's a little old to play you. So I think Hemsworth is better, but he'll have to um, he'll have to work on like having more soul come through. He can look a little, you know, not filled with soul. I don't know how to I'm not insulting him like. He's also a fine actor, but, you know, like you have real soul that needs to come through in that portrayal. So it would be a stretch role for him, I think. But, you know, he'd also have to like Christian Bale and the machinist and lose 95 (laughs) percent of his muscle. (laughs) Well, you do, you know, have a job besides going to the gym and lifting weights. So. (laughs) Uh, So what else uh, before we jump into the episode? Anything? uh exciting from your week, your month, your year? Well, you know, like I save up every little thing that happens to me because I only have enough things that basically fill up like three minutes before an episode. But I do have something that I just started watching that you might find interesting. So I started watching Sophie on Netflix. Have you seen it or watched it? I have not seen nor heard. Okay, so it's a limited series documentary about a murder of a French woman um, in the kind of remote countryside of Ireland in West Cork. And I'm only halfway through the first of three episodes, but already I'm really loving it. I don't have a sense of where it's going. There have been some foreboding statements, but what I really like about it is that it takes time with the story, with the setting, with the people. So even though so far they have talked with some police and there have been, you know, investigation details included... It's very rooted and centered in storytelling, at least so far. So I'm really looking forward to continuing that. And I would suggest you, you know, check it out. Ooh, yeah. I'll put it on my list. Yeah. What else? Gosh, I don't know. I've been doing a lot of work on the podcast. I mean, you know, 
<laughs> yes. Yeah, I think we have a great episode ahead of us. I'm, it's a lot here. So, yeah, the listener well, already knows because of episode titles, unless we get really cryptic. <laughs> uh, today is another bad one. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's, you know, the true crime world, aren't they all? Yeah. But um, the Texarkana Moonlight murders are crimes that I was not very familiar with. Same. In general, it somehow passed my, like, true crime... And even when I looked it up, like, it, it was only in a mini episode of My Favorite Murder. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, so they haven't done a full episode on this. Because I was really surprised. I feel like this crime is, I, ugh, I don't know the right word, but, like, totally fits the bill to be a heavily discussed crime. And yet I just haven't heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I was the same. I had heard of it, but... Um, I didn't know much about it at all in the same way that you kind of absorb a lot of details about some other really infamous crimes. Yeah. So you ready to just jump right in? Yeah. All right. So before we get started, we want to give a content warning. Uh, This case involves mentions of sexual assault and of suicide. Um, If you're a survivor of sexual assault and need support, um, or anyone who needs support, we have provided some resources in the episode notes um, on our website, mostfoulpod.com. And, you know, this is the first episode that we've done that includes sexual assault. So we just want to talk a bit about how we cover sexual violence or how we talk about it. And we've done some talking offline, the two of us, and and I think we're of one mind here, but jump in, Andrew, anytime. You know, we are not an investigative podcast. We don't expect that any of the little details we talk about are going to break a case. You know, there are great podcasts out there like that, but this is just not one of them. We discuss things because we find them interesting or culturally resonant, or maybe they're not as well known as they should be. So that being the case, we are not going to mention every single detail of a crime, specifically sexual assaults, unless it in some way illuminates uh, the crime or the story that we're telling, or it's really crucial. So we don't have any interest in sensationalizing the crimes that we talk about, again, specifically and especially sexual assaults. We get that it's a fine line and others might disagree, but this is just kind of where we draw our line. I'm a survivor and both Andrew and I have a lot of experience working in the survivor community and we want this podcast to be a safe place for everyone listening. 100% co-sign that. Yeah. Again, if this topic is triggering for you or you find that you need additional support, check out our resources in the episode notes. Okay? So... With that being said, I'm going to kind of set the scene here because, again, I think that this this is a series of crimes that I think people may not know that much about. So our story today takes place in Texarkana, which is a small city that straddles the border of Texas and Arkansas, as the name implies. In the months immediately after the end of World War II, uh, so we're in 1945-46 here, an atmosphere of release and relief prevailed in and around the Twin Cities there. Uh, But once you scratch the surface of cozy post-war prosperity, there was a kind of low-key lawlessness there. Texarkana served as a major transportation hub, so it had four major rail lines and six U.S. highways and interstates running through its combined territory. And, you know, it's not a huge city. Even now, it's only got... In the greater Texarkana area, 150,000 people. So it's a lot of kind of comings and goings through a small, uh, kind of a small city. With that kind of influx came a lot of culture and entertainment that were not typical for a city its size, but it also brought drifters and petty criminals. Um, There were even a few brothels in town, I read, and it was just kind of, you know, people looked the other way. So it was during this time that a faceless menace began stalking the back roads and remote locales at the edge of town. No one knows for certain really how long this specter hunted and planned, but in the final hour of February 22, 1946, he erupted in violence, and during the late winter and early spring of 1946, he terrorized the tight-knit community in a way that really still affects people who live there. This man became known as the Phantom Killer, 
um, the Phantom Slayer, or simply the Phantom, he was called at times. And his crimes are known as, as Andrew said, the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. To get started, I'm just going to kind of go through. This is a serial a serial case, so I'm going to go through the crimes one at a time. And there are four kind of attacks that happened during the course of his reign of terror. The first attack, as I said, happened on Friday, February 22nd, 1946. At around 11.45, after a date at the movies, Sweetheart's Jimmy Hollis, who was 25, and Mary Jean Larry, who was 19, parked off a well-known lover's lane. And this lover's lane is now known as Robinson Road. And in the episode notes, we have a link to a map of approximate crime scenes for reference. Uh, I couldn't find exactly where this long road, it's a long road that runs through town, where the attack took place exactly, but... It's important to note two things for the remainder of the story. One, it was on the Texas side of the city near what used to be the edge of town. Um, And two, it intersects with U.S. Highway 67. And we'll talk more on that later. So a few minutes before midnight, they had only been there a couple of minutes, a man wearing a white bag or hood with eye and mouth holes cut out approached the car. Um, And he shined a bright flashlight in the window on Jimmy and Mary Jean's faces. So they didn't really get a good look at him. Um, And the attacker spoke to them and ordered Jimmy out of the car, claiming he didn't want to kill them. So Jimmy complied and got out of the car. And then the attacker ordered him to take off his pants. And then as soon as he complied, he the attacker hit Jimmy in the head twice with the butt of his pistol And it was with so much force that Mary Jean thought that he had actually been shot. It was the sound of his skull cracking that she had heard, not a shot. The attacker then hit Mary Jean in the head and ordered her out of the car as well. Once out, he told her to run. Um, When she ran in the direction of a nearby ditch, he told her to uh, run up the road instead. And she complied. And as she was seeking help up the road, the attacker found her again and then at that point sexually assaulted her. After the attack, Mary Jean was able to flee again on foot and finally got help at a nearby house. And the occupants called the police, and the police had already been alerted to the crime by Jimmy, who had regained consciousness and flagged down a passing motorist. So that was the first attack. So two victims, and and both of them survived that attack, although Jimmy was in a coma for quite a few days. So then almost exactly four weeks after that first attack, so Sunday, March 24th, 1946, on that morning, a passing motorist discovered the bodies of Richard Griffin, who was 29, and Polly Ann Moore, who was 17, parked on the same lover's lane where Jimmy and Mary Jean had been attacked about four weeks before, just 100 yards south of Highway 67. So again, that same landmark comes into play. And their bodies were found near a bar called Club Dallas. There were no witnesses to the crime itself, so the exact sequence of events is unknown. They were both found in the car, though, and Richard was positioned in the front seat on his knees with his head resting on his folded hands, and both of his pants pockets were pulled inside out. Paul sustained three gunshot wounds, and, you know, I think this is important to mention about this entire case. There's a lot of conflicting information. A lot of source documentation is gone, has been lost or destroyed. So I did find some sources that said he had been shot once and others that he had been shot three times. But the most reliable that I could find, in my opinion, said that he was shot three times. So two of which were thought to have happened inside his car. And then the fatal shot happened possibly outside on a blanket, but the fatal shot was a shot to the back of his head. And Polly Ann was also found in the car with a single gunshot to the back of her head, but investigators were pretty confident that she was killed outside the car and placed back inside. Again, it's just pure speculation, but maybe that was to delay the, you know, the discovery of the bodies. At the time, there were rumors that Polly Ann had been sexually assaulted, even though both Richard and she were found fully clothed. Apparently, modern reports refute the idea that Polly Ann was sexually assaulted, but Again, I couldn't find a lot of detail on this point, and it does seem to be a point of contention in terms of MO. So just something to bear in mind there. It seems odd that a criminal would change their MO in that way, that one would 
have a sexual component and then a future one wouldn't. But again, like information is very, is very sketchy on a lot of this. Afterwards, the crime scene, a 32 caliber shell was found at the scene and the murder weapon was believed to be a Colt pistol, possibly wrapped in a blanket to muffle the sound. So that was the second attack. The third attack, which took place almost exactly three weeks after the second. So people are starting to discern a pattern here and we'll talk more about the impact and and the aftermath, but, you know, people are obviously very scared at this point. Um, Mm -hmm. And seeing this pattern, they're beginning to anticipate crimes. So on Sunday, April 14th, 1946, Betty Jo Booker, who was 15, had been playing a gig with her band, the Rhythmares, at the VFW Club on West 4th and Oak Street, which is something she did every week. And this VFW Club, again, is on the Texas side of the city, like like the others. Around 1.30 on that Sunday morning, her longtime friend Paul Martin, who was 17, picked Betty Jo up from the club, and that was the last time they were ever seen alive. Paul's body was found early the next morning, lying on the side of the road. Um, It was the northern edge of North Park Road. So again, you can check the map. It's kind of conjecture where along that road. It's a long road. Um, But it was about five miles from where they had been last seen. And after Paul's body was found with no sign of Betty Jo or his car, a search party was formed and her body was found about five hours later near Morris Lane, about two miles from the location where Paul had been found. So very close to each other. Both kids were fully dressed, but Betty Jo was kind of staged. I mean, I'm using that word, which no police officer used that word. So I'm kind of interjecting that here. But from what I could tell, it looked like maybe she had been staged because she had one hand in the pocket of her overcoat. And she was behind a tree, and they both died from gunshot wounds determined to also be from a thirty-two caliber Colt automatic pistol. So at this point, they knew they were dealing with the same person with all of these crimes. Mm-hmm. Betty Jo had also been sexually assaulted, and both of them had significant defensive wounds because, remember, this is only about three weeks after the previous double murder, so Paul and Betty Joe probably had no illusions about their fate if they didn't fight this guy, which wasn't necessarily the case for Richard and Polly Ann, or definitely for Jimmy and Mary Jean, who really just kind of thought they were being robbed. So Paul's car was finally located outside Spring Lake Park, about three miles from Be- from Betty Joe's body and a mile and a half from Paul's, and it had the keys still in it. Again, it's not known for sure who was killed first or exactly where they were killed, so the sequence of events is a best-guess reconstruction, but this whole thing is a pretty drastic change of MO from the previous two in terms of how the crimes went down and what the killer did with the victims after the attack, in the sense that they were separated from the car. And it's not known, kind of, again, where it happened or how... They got from the club to the park. They were around the same age, but they had been childhood friends. So they weren't dating, and none of their friends were really sure what they would have been doing in the park at night. It's not like the others. They maybe appeared to an outsider to be a couple, but they weren't a couple. So how they how they found themselves in the park and then how they got away from the park is, is really still not known to this day. And it's important to note here that these crimes were not centered around Highway 67, but around Interstate 30, which is on the northwest side of town. So it's a little bit different again, but it seems clear that the killer was kind of sticking to highways or the highways played some role in in his kind of ritual. Yeah. Now, the fourth attack shows kind of the greatest departure from, from kind of the MOs previously. And... We're looking at Friday, May 3rd, 1946, which is, again, three weeks after the previous attack. So fitting in with the pattern. Um, what's different, though, is that the the victims of this attack were Virgil and Katie Starks, and they were 36 and 30, respectively. So much older than the previous victims. Uh, they lived in a modest home on a 500-acre farm about 10 miles outside of Texarkana to the northeast. So now we're on the Arkansas side. But 
their farm was right off of, you know, you can guess probably Highway US 67. So on this particular Friday evening, Virgil was sitting down to listen to his favorite weekly radio show while reading the paper, and Katie was just relaxing um, in bed. Sometime before 9 o'clock that night, Katie heard a noise from the backyard, and she called out to Virgil to turn the radio down so she could hear what was going on. And almost immediately after she called to him, Virgil was shot twice in the back of the head through a closed window. And that window was just about a yard away from where he was sitting. Katie only heard the breaking glass from the window and not the gunshot. So, you know, that kind of has me wondering, was some kind of blanket or like homemade silencer used in this Mm -hmm. case? Or was it just that the gun was outside? But in any event, she heard the glass breaking. She went into the other room to see what had happened. And she saw Virgil stand up and then collapse back down into his chair. So she ran to help him, but she soon realized that he was dead It's not clear, though, from what I could find, if she realized that he had been shot or if she knew that she was still in danger. But she went to the nearby phone to call for help. And it was then that the attacker shot her twice in the face from the same window that he had used to shoot Virgil. So immediately she dropped to her knees um, from, you know, just the impact to her face. But she soon got up and managed to go into the living room and looking for a pistol that she had in the house. And now I'm just going to read this part and it's going to haunt me forever. She heard the killer tearing loose the rusted screen wire on the back porch. She thought she was going to be killed. So she stumbled toward her bedroom near the front of the house to leave a note. Meanwhile, the killer ran to the back of the house and made his way up the steps and into the side-screened porch through the back screen door. She heard the killer coming through the kitchen window, so she turned around and ran through the dining room, through the bedroom, down a hallway, through another bedroom, and then into the living room and out the front door, leaving behind a, quote, virtual river of blood, end quote, and teeth throughout the house and across the street. Barefoot and still in her blood-soaked nightgown, she ran across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house. Because no one was home, she ran 50 yards more to A.V. Prater's house. Prater answered her call for help. She gasped. Virgil's dead, then collapsed. End quote. It it just, it feels like it's taken 100% from a horror movie. Just hard to even imagine being in that kind of a scenario. Fortunately, though, Katie did survive the attack, but she could not she could not describe her attacker. Initially, investigators thought this crime was committed by a different killer, both because of the different MO and because the weapon used in this crime was a 22 caliber. But many continued to believe it was the same killer, and that seems to be the consensus today. I mean, again, as I said, Texarkana, even now, is does is not even two hundred thousand people. What are the chances that two deranged couple killers, so not just killers, but couple killers, are loose at the same time? But the different MOs are strange and difficult to reconcile, and I I feel that way about the entire case. You know, there are a lot of threads that are very, very similar, but there are a lot of things that are just not and kind of don't make sense to me. But a lot of people thought and I think the the final story about it all was that the killer was forced to change his M.O. because of all the patrols, unofficial and official, on the back roads and other places that couples went to be alone. So I'll talk more about that in the next section. But essentially, the killer had to change how he was operating because there were just too many people looking for him in his usual kind of places. You know, this was the fourth attack on a couple, um, and it switched from the Texas side to the Arkansas side, mm-hmm. shooting through the window of a house. I mean, a 500-acre farm makes me sound like there's not a lot of traffic passing through. Right. So it's like he's in that craze, needs to kill phase, and can't do it how he's been doing it. Right. So, yeah, it just doesn't seem that wild to switch the MO so much. Yeah, that's all very true. And I think... When you think in terms of a three-week gap between the murders, from what I understand and what I've read, that's a pretty quick cycle. You know, I think typically serial killers are known to start with a wider, like a longer cycle. 
So months in between crimes and then in time that speeds up. So to begin, I mean, if this was the beginning, you know, we don't know for sure because we don't know who did it. But if this was the beginning, then that's pretty quick cycling. And so I think that there is some kind of implied, you know, frenzy maybe isn't the right word, but real like compulsion to do this Mm -hmm. in spite of whatever the hurdles may have been. In terms of the investigation, after the first attack, authorities kind of thought it was a one-off, you know, a heinous crime, no doubt. Uh, Jimmy, as I said, was in a coma for days, and Mary Jean was so traumatized, she almost immediately moved away from Texarkana to live with her aunt and uncle. Um, But at the time, the sexual nature of the entire crime, again, not just the sexual assault, but the fact that they were couples and... You know, the the sexual overtones to the whole thing, it wouldn't have necessarily indicated to investigators at that time that they were dealing with a serial offender. And the conflicting descriptions of the assailant from Jimmy and Mary Jean, Jimmy described him as a tan white man and Mary Jean described him as a light skinned black man. That meant that the investigation didn't yield any suspects. So you know, again, seen just really as a one-off, and they were working the crime very thoroughly from what I can tell, but it, it just wasn't turning up anything. But after the second attack, four weeks later, the investigation ramped up significantly, obviously, and the community really began closing ranks. So that's when parents started keeping their kids home at night. And, you know, this is in the 40s. So at that time, people didn't lock their, their doors. Um, and left their keys in their cars and um, all this kind of small town stuff. And for the first time, people started locking their doors and windows and stopped kind of going out. It, it changed the, the feel, the vibe in the town. Mm-hmm. And then after the third attack, I think that's when it could really be described as panic. Panic overtook the town. And many people said in news reports that it actually became an unsafe place to be because residents were armed and they were very scared. So even people who didn't previously have weapons had gone out and gotten weapons and everybody was jumpy. So people were encouraged to stay at home, um, not only to avoid the phantom, but to avoid being accidentally shot by a jittery neighbor. Stores completely sold out of guns, locks, and all manner of self-defense and fortification. And businesses began closing early because there were virtually no people out after dark. The case also ramped up even more, and it was around this time that the Texas Rangers were called in, and they they joined the existing investigative team that included county sheriff's office personnel, city police, and volunteer officers from neighboring towns. Um, so at this point, no crime had been committed in Arkansas, but the Arkansas police and sheriff's office were also very involved in the case. And again, at that time, the term serial killer hadn't been coined. And although the criminal investigations had made huge leaps in sophistication during the first few decades of the 20th century, a lot of the research into forensic psychology and criminology that informs our understanding of these crimes today had not been done or even imagined then. So the motive was understood as sex mania, and that's in quotes, um, and I, I think I have uh, some pictures of news news clippings from that time where that was in the headline. That was kind of like as official as the diagnosis could get at that point. And the investigators believe the killer was smart and well-organized and methodical in his planning. I, I think still this idea of a sex maniac probably colored their examination of suspects. You know, they had, I think, in their mind an idea of what this person would look like, and it maybe wasn't mm-hmm. someone who just was a normal person. Yeah, we just didn't understand yet. Yeah, exactly. So it's like they knew he was smart and organized, but I think they were looking for someone that kind of looked unhinged. That's that's the impression that I got. But at this point, there were hundreds of suspects. You know, they really were working this case hard. Then after the fourth attack, the case just really went supernova. That's when it started getting picked up in the national news media. FBI agents were sent to join the investigation, and there were just dozens and dozens and dozens of investigators working on the case. But a few things hampered the case. They were really bogged down with tips and calls from scared residents who kind of thought every bump and creak was the phantom killer. They were also really bogged down with vigilante citizens who were putting together 
patrols and on the back roads or setting up kind of like sting operations. So I read a couple of stories of police coming upon a car parked out on a lonely country lane and it was teenagers with a gun who were basically trying to trap the phantom. So a lot of this kind of stuff really bogged the police down. They had to deal with, you know, mm-hmm. just being inundated with calls having to deal with well-meaning people who were just kind of clogging up the machinery of the investigation. But around that time, a mobile radio station was brought in from Austin to allow real-time communication between not just the officers and headquarters, but from car to car to speed up information sharing. So again, I mean, when we look back at this, you know, even, even our parents, you and I, were not alive in this time. So it's hard, I think, to put our minds in this moment of what was possible, but, you know, just communicating from car to car, officer to officer was not possible under normal circumstances. This was special technology that was brought in just for this case. You just blew my mind because I've always just sort of assumed that like ham radio or CV radios still existed and would have been used in police cars, but whoa. Right. Talk about no means of communication. Yeah. So in a a normal investigation at this time, what would have happened is a patrol car would have called into headquarters and then headquarters would have had to call back out to another patrol car, you know, just a difficult way to work. And at that time, (laughs) this is going to, I think, be hard for people to believe, but local kids um, and undercover police were used as bait, basically, in an effort to trap the killer. So the the report that I saw said that the local kids were, quote unquote, mostly the kids of rain, Texas Rangers, but not entirely. So there were children that were being put out like as decoys or as, you know, to trap him and a reward of up to ten thousand dollars, which is about one hundred and forty thousand dollars in today's money was offered for the apprehension and conviction of the killer. But, you know, the killer, I, I think, was smart and managed to evade all of these kind of efforts. In the fourth attack, a flashlight was dropped at the scene, and the Texarkana Gazette ran a large picture of it on the front page. And just incidentally, as a as a point of interest, this, this image was the first spot color photo ever printed by the newspaper. Um, so again, I think it just gives a, a sense of what this time period was like. So... Check out the the episode notes and um, Instagram because I've got a picture of this picture and you're going to you're going to be floored by how kind of rudimentary it is. Very soon after the fourth attack, wild rumors began circulating around the town and adjoining communities and some focused on particular people being involved. So I think kind of typical small town gossip, but kind of metastasized because people are freaked the fuck out. But then other rumors started that a culprit had been identified and arrested, but the truth was being kept from the public. So basically people were claiming that police had arrested him, but they weren't telling the community. And the reasons for that varied, but they were kind of like, you know, in the conspiracy theory zone, it was someone prominent son or, you know, mm-hmm. the reasons were very varied, but a lot of people really believed. And you can even find people today. I, I read sources that said, you know, when I went to the town to interview for this book that I wrote in the 90s, like people still believed that they had found and apprehended and incarcerated the, the killer, but never shared the identity or any of that information with the public. So you know, these rumors were very pervasive and pernicious. And I think it's another thing that slowed the police down and and hindered them because they were spending time and resources refuting rumors and managing the public's fear and all of this stuff in addition to trying to solve these cases. So now I, I want to talk a little bit about kind of the resolution. And I mean, there's some resolution, even though this is technically an unsolved crime, A little over a month after the fourth attack, uh, a rookie investigator on the case made the connection that on the night of one of the murders, a car that had been reported stolen was found abandoned nearby. And he hypothesized that the stolen car had been used in the murder. 
So on June 28th, he was out patrolling and he spotted a car that had been reported stolen and was just parked in a lot in town. So on a hunch, he decided to wait at the car to see if anybody returned to it. And when 21-year-old Peggy Swinney came back to the car, uh, the police finally had a really hot lead. So Peggy was arrested, and she promptly implicated herself and her husband, whose name was Yule Swinney, in the theft of that car and another car, which Yule was out of town selling at that time. When Yule returned to town, he was promptly arrested, um, ostensibly for car theft, but also, you know, as a suspect in the vicious attacks. He made several incriminating statements while being transported, like asking whether he would get the electric chair, which, you know, even in Texas is not a possible punishment for car theft. So he was very concerned about his little white ass and what was going to become of him um, in a way that, you know, made investigators feel like they really had their guy because this guy is asking questions that don't line up with someone who thinks that they're only being picked up for car theft. Yeah. Yeah, it's very suspicious. Peggy later told investigators that Ewell had had confessed the crimes to her, and she shared information with them that the police verified and believed only the killer could know. Now, there's just a lot of details in this, and so I'm not going into every little detail, but, you know, if you're interested, go and do a deep dive. Um, but she did a lot of interviews and she gave a lot of information. And, and I have to say from the little that I read, it really seems suspicious. Like she knew where items were and she was able to explain things, particularly in the case of Betty Jo, uh, Booker and Paul Martin that explained the kind of chaotic findings in terms of where Paul's body was, where, where her body was, where the car was found. So it, it seemed like she had information that she wouldn't have if she didn't have an intimate knowledge of the crimes. But because of spousal immunity, she couldn't be forced to testify against him, and she refused to do so voluntarily. Another thing I just want to kind of add in here is, again, I started doing kind of a deep dive into it. It wasn't presented in any of the kind of summaries of the case, but I think it is important to note that when they picked her up, Ewell and and Peggy had just gotten married a few days prior, so like four days. So basically they got married between the crimes and when they got picked up. And, you know, if he was guilty and if she had knowledge of the crime, that would be one way to kind of ensure that maybe her knowledge couldn't be used against him. So just speculation, but I do think it's kind of interesting that they got married just a couple of days before before they were arrested. Then to complicate matters, you know, some partial prints that were found at some of the crime scenes didn't match Yule, and both Peggy and Yule changed their stories many times. There were other, other suspects over the course of the investigation, including one, which I'll say a little bit more about later, but his name is H.B. Duty Tennyson. Um, He was an Arkansas teen who died by suicide and confessed in a note he left behind. But police were convinced that Ewell was their man. But because of the exculpatory evidence, the lack of witnesses, and without a solid confession or testimony from Peggy, um, they were never able to charge Ewell with any of the crimes. So police think that they have their guy. Like, they're pretty 100%. I think that in the end, they came around to feeling that all four attacks were the same the same killer, but there was basically nothing that they could do about it given the technology and the methods at that time. They did, however, prosecute Ewell for the car thefts, and they used something that was called being a habitual offender. So I think this is something kind of similar to the three strikes in California, but it allowed them to sentence him to life in prison for car theft, again, as a habitual offender. So I think similar to the three strikes, but he agreed not to contest the charge. So that was a move that was seen by a lot of people as an unofficial plea bargain to avoid the death penalty for the murders. Mm -hmm. He even tried to confess and plead guilty to the the car that like the habitual offender charge um which he didn't even need to do but that's how anxious he was to kind of make that deal 
So he did receive life in prison, but he was released in 1973 after a previous conviction was voided due to insufficient counsel. So that was a car theft that had happened in 1941 before all of these crimes. Um, and it was later found that he didn't, he didn't have counsel. And so that, that was voided. And because that one was voided, the habitual offender piece fell apart. So was complicated. Basically, he was released on a technicality, but everyone still thought that he was he was the perpetrator. So he died in 1994 at the age of 77 in a nursing home in Dallas, and he proclaimed innocence to the end, at least publicly. Peggy Swinney variously confessed to being an accessory to the crimes, um, though her story changed pretty wildly from interview to interview. So, you know, in one version, she might have been with him when he got the car but didn't know what was going on. And then another version, she was sitting in the car knowing that he was off, like, with the victims doing who knows what and then came back alone. So, I mean, just very kind of murky, but she seems... If it was them, she seems very involved herself. Mm-hmm. She served some time for her role in the car thefts, uh, but investigators lost track of her after 1946. Now, I am kind of like an Ancestry geek, so I have a subscription to Ancestry.com, and so I went and did a little digging because I really wasn't satisfied. I wanted to know what happened to them um, and if she stuck by him. And I found Arkansas records that show she divorced him in 1949, and she died in 2014, kind of curiously in the same city where Ewell died. So she also died in Dallas. But the case remains officially unsolved, and pretty much all physical evidence has been lost or destroyed. Records are really bad. I mean, you know, it's funny, when I look at it, it almost feels in some ways like there's less reliable, consistent information than even a story or a case like, you know, Jack the Ripper, which seems like an extreme thing to say, but like, that's how degraded and low quality all the stuff around this is. Um, It just feels very chaotic. And like, I found myself very interested in, you know, have modern forensic psychologists taken a look and done a profile of the killer and how does that line up to the different possible suspects but I couldn't find anything like that I think this is one of those cases that as heinous and gruesome as it is you know for whatever reason just didn't quite go to that level um, of interest so I, I think nobody really seems to have any hope that it will ever be officially closed although a lot of people have very strong opinions about what happened but you know, if you're feeling unsatisfied by all of this information and really want to go down the rabbit hole like I did, check out the book review linked in our show notes. It's written by a distant cousin of that that suspect that I mentioned before, H.B. Duty Tennyson. And he's reviewing a 2014 book that's been called by some the definitive summation of the case. It's called The Phantom Killer by James Presley. And this reviewer is a like I said, a distant cousin. And so he's got some skin in the game, but he utterly shreds the book and he links to some really interesting different resources. So there's a Facebook discussion group and some other sites. So check that out in the episode notes if you want to know more. I I think there's a lot more to this case. And I, I think that this could basically be a whole podcast, this case, honestly. Well, it's so my mind keeps going back to Zodiac. Mm hmm. And, you know, in that episode, we talked about the outsized impact because of the media, but also the timing. Like when you think of the 40s, like if this exact case would have happened in the 60s, maybe it would be one of the biggest cases in America. And maybe it would be up there with Zodiac. But I mean, just so horrible. Mm hmm. Definitely. And, you know, happening in a community like this, which, you know, I, I don't proclaim to be an expert on Texarkana, but, you know, it, it feels like a big little town. Do you know what I mean? You know, my sense was it was it was a really tight knit community. And I think it really kind of scarred the community in a weird way. And I think the impact is still felt, even though now I think it's kind of led to the town having this 
little bit offbeat character, you know, so there was a movie made from this case and they do a showing of that movie every summer in the park. So kind of like seems to have imbued the town with kind of like a dark humor, a kind of twisted like personality if a town can have a personality. You're taking my stuff. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I'm going to cut you out and leave mine in. Yes, do. (laughs) Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. So even though this didn't have the same level of fervor and it's not in our sort of true crime lexicon in the same way as Zodiac, these murders still have quite a rich history in pop culture. So in nonfiction alone, you know, I I was able to find at least nine books and then fiction books that this is in, I found another five. There could be more. Mm -hmm. Um, But kind of the the item that really kicked it off is the 1976 film, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. So the movie was directed and produced by Charles B. Pierce and written by Earl E. Smith. Now, Pierce is often considered one of the first modern independent filmmakers. And he was very connected to the story because he was an Arkansas resident for most of his life. In interviews, he said that he remembered being scared by news stories about the killer during his youth. Mm-hmm. So after receiving criticism for the graphic violence portrayed in the film, particularly one scene where the killer ties a woman to a tree, attaches a knife to the end of a trombone, and repeatedly stabs her while playing the instrument. Um, But Pierce said he purposely made the film violent because he felt the real-life situation was horrific and he didn't want to glaze over it. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I see it, but also... A knife on a trombone and killing someone while playing the song. Like, that's a whole nother type of violent. Yeah. But he said, and this is a quote, I've been accused of going a little too far off the deep end with that trombone scene, but it worked. When that picture played opening night in Texarkana, a lot of people were there who had grown up during that time. When that trombone scene was over, you could have heard a pin drop. I'm telling you, everybody was just frozen. So, at least to him, it worked. I I guess you just have to define worked. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He even gave himself a a role in the film. He was policeman Sparkplug Benson and served as comic relief. (laughs) But he directed 13 films over the span of 26 years. He was honored by the Little Rock Film Festival, where they renamed their Best Film Award the Charles B. Pierce Award for the Best Film Made in Arkansas. And an interesting side note, the co-creators of the Blair Witch Project said that his work strongly influenced them. So back to the film. Its tagline states that the man who killed five people, quote, still lurks the streets of Texarkana, Arkansas. This caused Texarkana city officials to sue (laughs) Pierce uh, over the movie's ad in 1977. So he worked with the American International Pictures to remove the still lurking statement, but it stayed on the posters. And the posters weren't the only controversy. In 1978, Gerald Gedramus, a teenager, shot and killed his high school friend, um, in court, Gedramus stated that he thought of his plan to be an outlaw like Jesse James while watching the town that dreaded sundown. Uh. Still, the film has a place in Texarkana. Since 2003, it's been shown around Halloween at their yearly Movies in the Park event. Um, and it even launched something called a meta-sequel, which was like a remake, but then also a sequel it it was kind of hard to define what that meant but that was in 2014 and it has the same name and it was produced by jason blum who shepherded in the paranormal activity franchise um and launched the horror production company blum house and also ryan murphy of glee and american horror story fame Mm -hmm. and ryan uh ryan murphy said The movie that I was most freaked out by as a child was The Town That Dreaded Sundown. I was just starting to babysit my brother. Ads would come on for it, and I would get freaked out. He went on to say that it was one of his favorite childhood films. So I don't think it's too far of a leap to assume 
that these crimes and subsequent films are at least partially responsible for inspiring him to create the massively successful American horror story franchise at this point. Definitely. And the even more sinister Glee. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But jumping back, so the crimes are also featured in the 2012 film Seven Psychopaths, also 2017 episode of Riverdale, and the inspiration for the 2007 song Texarkana Moonlight by the band The Bad Detectives, um, which is on our Spotify for when this episode comes out. You can go and listen to that. Um, There was even a play called The Phantom Killer that was written by Jan Buttron, who grew up in the Oak Grove community near Texarkana. And that debuted in Manhattan at the Abingdon Theater Company's Dorothy Stryland Theater. Um, And then most recently, it was featured in an episode of BuzzFeed's Unsolved True Crime series. And I looked, and that video has 8.4 million views. Wow. But probably in the most unique way these crimes have inserted themselves into pop culture is by inspiring an urban legend, Mm. the hook Mm -hmm. or the hook man. (laughs) Now, this story is widely popular. It's a piece of folklore that uh, even made it to me on my farm. Uh, The basic premise involves a young couple cuddling in a car with the radio playing. Um, Suddenly, a news bulletin reports that a serial killer has escaped a nearby institution. Um, Folks probably have heard this. The killer has a hook. They decide to leave. And in the end, the killer's hook is either found hanging from the door handle or embedded into the door itself. There are lots of different variations that include knocking and scraping, narrowly escaping the killer that's on the top of the car. Mm -hmm. Another version, a woman sees a shadowy figure watching the couple nearby. The man leaves to confront the figure. They disappear. And the man's been brutally murdered by a hook. Another version, they're driving through the country. They're in the middle of the woods. They have to stop for the guy to pee. (laughs) Um, And it's a mental patient that's escaped. And there's thumping on the roof of the car. There's more versions of the man hanging right from a tree with blood dripping from him. Just, it goes on and on. But, and it's weird because, you know, it's this hook. It's not a gun. But the story began to circulate in the 1950s. And it's been really directly connected to these Texarkana Moonlight murders. Mm-hmm. And according to folklorist and historian Jan Harold Brunvard, the story became widespread among American teenagers by 1959, and then that continued to expand into the 60s. And so it grew legs of its own. Um, word of mouth, it was spreading. It was a popular story, a popular legend. But its popularity blew up in 1960 when a reader wrote in to Dear Abby and they reprinted it. Mm -hmm. So it's short. I'll read it to you. Um, It read, quote, Dear Abby, if you're interested in teenagers, you will print this story. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it doesn't matter because it served its purpose for me. A fellow and his date pulled into their favorite lover's lane to listen to the radio and do a little necking. The music was interrupted by an announcer who said there was an escaped convict in the area who had served time for rape and robbery. He was described as having a hook instead of a right hand. The couple becomes frightened and drove away. When the boy took his girl home, he went around to open the car door for her. Then he saw a hook on the door handle, exclamation point. I will never park to make out as long as I live. And I hope this does the same for other kids. Signed, Jeanette. Wow. So before there was Um, Facebook, there was Dear Abby. Yes. (laughs) And Jeanette, good on her. Also, I don't know. You can't let everything ruin your life. (laughs) So, but to put its impact into perspective... So there are probably listeners who maybe aren't familiar with Dear Abby. Um, It was an advice column that was circulated through a lot of newspapers. And it has an estimated readership at 110 million people. Holy shit. I had no idea. I was surprised, too. Yeah, the New York Times described it as a staple in American households for decades. 
Which, I mean, is so, true. I, I came of age in the Dear Abby era, and even as a kid, I remember looking forward to, like, once you aged out of the comics, you moved on to the horoscope and Dear Abby, and they were all on the same page. And, yeah, I love Dear Abby. And like you said, um, there wasn't Facebook yet. And so it was like this insight into people, interesting questions, interesting answers. So I was surprised, too, by 110 million, but it totally makes sense, especially for all of those decades where that was like a crucial piece of entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there just wasn't much else, you know, there weren't a hundred channels and yada, yada, yada. So this was a big deal in cementing the legacy of these crimes Wow. And, and kind of the interesting tangential legacy, because obviously people aren't going around telling the story of the phantom killer, but those crimes are the reason this urban legend grew like this. Yeah. And so then this legend itself continued to have ripple effects on pop culture. The story was featured in the 1981 collection of short horror stories for children. So scary stories to tell in the dark, mm-hmm. that book series, which is probably where I heard it from thinking back like that. I remember somebody had it in my elementary school and then... It was like, ooh, everybody is having to get scared. (laughs) Um, So that book series has been hailed as, and another quote, a cultural touchstone for a generation, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, I feel that from my own, like, I was that generation. Well, and Um, I think that's probably where I got it, too, because that sounds like right, 81 is kind of like right around when I had an awareness of that and other legends of that era. Yeah, because it turned into a series. And then also just being the youngest, uh, Mm. like, I'm the youngest in my immediate family, but I am drastically the youngest in all of my cousins Mm -hmm. that ring up like 20 years older than me. I'm like the baby of the entire family. (laughs) Uh, You know, except now there's a new generation behind me. (laughs) Um, But yeah, and then in 2017, the books had collectively sold more than 7 million copies. Wow. But, like, you hold that up against Dear Abby, and that's nothing. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, wow, damn. I'm just, like, shocked about Dear Abby. 110 million. Uh, but there was a film made of the book series in 2019, which I really enjoyed. It was um, produced by Guillermo del Toro. I didn't, I don't know of it. It, it's worth a watch if you like horror movies. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, but also, so speaking of movies, the legend appears in a ton of films, some of them very surprising. Uh, 74's Dick Tracy's Dilemma, 79's Meatballs, uh, comedy, oh, okay. uh, 1980, He Knows You're Alone, mm. 1997's Campfire Tales, and then the horror classic I Know What You Did Last Summer was inspired by this. Yeah. Also, Candyman films in the 90s and Jordan Peele's new remake that's scheduled to come out pulls inspiration from this story. Um, A movie in 99 called Lover's Lane and then 2007's Shrek the Halls. (laughs) What? (laughs) <laughs> Apparently, the gingerbread man, Gingy, tells a story, uh, not as graphic and brutal, but a hook man story. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then on TV, uh, you know, the usual suspects, like Supernatural mm-hmm. had a hook man, and then SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's easy to laugh, but it, it really is interesting thinking about the ripple effects into pop culture these horrific crimes in the 1940s and the ways in which it's informed generations, especially through this urban legend lens. Yeah. And so even though it's like far reaching and the phantom killer slash the Texarkana moonlight murders might not be one of the top, top tier sounds weird, but top true crime cases that we think of when we think of heavy hitters, uh, it's really dominated the pop culture landscape and influenced generations. And, you know, I wonder if it's almost like the disconnect between knowing about the source that gives some of that life, right? Because 
then you can imagine that it has a life of its own and it's not connected. Like it's, it becomes more of an archetype in a way when it's not really explicitly attached to something real. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Does that make sense? But it makes sense in my head. <laughs> and listeners, I mean, this is a, a shameless plug for our Patreon, but because of the connection to the hook, uh, Kirsten and I are doing an entire bonus episode on urban legends. Yes. Yes. Uh, which, I mean, I, I feel like I kind of grew up in the golden age of urban legends because it's not only before the internet, but also before kind of mass communication in a way. And so you would hear this kind of over here at a sleepover or something, and then it would seep out, but it gave it such power in your imagination, you know? Anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, ex- I'm looking forward to that. So listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode. I know I learned a ton and I, you know, I can only speak for listening to Kirsten's side. I, I enjoyed this so much. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting case. And like I said, I feel like, you know, you can go so much deeper with it. This is kind of like the starter, the starter pack for learning more about this. And as always, we appreciate the hell out of you. So, so much. Thanks for listening to Most Foul. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini episode, visit our website at mostfoulpod.com and write in. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 